Section 20 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 12, American Leaders by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Robert Edward Lee, Part 1. 1807 to 1870, The Southern Confederacy. By E. Benjamin Andrews, LLD. Robert Edward Lee had perhaps a more illustrious, traceable lineage than any American not of his family. His ancestor, Lionel Lee, crossed the English Channel with William the Conqueror. Another scion of the clan fought beside Richard the Lionhearted at Accra in the Third Crusade. To Richard Lee, the great landowner on Northern Neck, the Virginia colony was much indebted for royal recognition. His grandson, Henry Lee, was the grandfather of Light Horse Harry Lee of Revolutionary fame, who was the father of Robert Edward Lee. Robert E. Lee was born on January 19, 1807, in Westmoreland County, Virginia, the same county that gave to the world George Washington and James Monroe. Though he was fatherless at eleven, the father's blood in him inclined him to the profession of arms, and when eighteen, in 1825, on an appointment attained for him by General Andrew Jackson, he entered the military academy at West Point. He graduated in 1829, being second in rank in a class of 46. Among his classmates were two men whom one delights to name with him, Ormsby M. Mitchell, later a general in the Federal Army, and Joseph E. Johnston, the famous Confederate. Lee was at once made lieutenant of engineers, but till the Mexican War attained only a captaincy. This was conferred on him in 1838. In 1831, Lee had been married to Miss Mary Randolph Custis, the granddaughter of Mrs. George Washington. By this marriage, he became possessor of the beautiful state of Arlington, opposite Washington, his home till the Civil War. The Union, blessed by seven children, was in all respects most happy. In his prime, Lee was spoken of as the handsomest man in the Army. He was about six feet tall, perfectly built, healthy, fond of outdoor life, enthusiastic in his profession, gentle, dignified, studious, broad-minded, and positively, though unobtrusively, religious. If he had faults, which those nearest him doubted, they were excess of modesty and excess of tenderness. During the Mexican War, Captain Lee directed all the most important engineering operations of the American Army, a work vital to its wonderful success. Already, at the Siege of Veracruz, General Scott mentioned him as having greatly distinguished himself. He was prominent in all the operations thence to Cerro Gordo, where, in April 1847, he was breveted major. Both at Contreras and Churubusco, he was credited with gallant and meritorious services. At the charge of Chapultepec, in which Joseph E. Johnston, George B. McClellan, George E. Pickett, and Thomas J. Jackson participated, Lee bore Scott's orders to all points until, from loss of blood by a wound, and from the loss of two nights' sleep at the batteries, he actually fainted away in the discharge of his duty. Such ability and devotion brought him home from Mexico bearing the brevet rank of colonel. General Scott had learned to think of him as the greatest military genius in America. In 1852, Lee was made superintendent of the West Point Military Academy. In 1855, he was commissioned lieutenant colonel of Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston's new cavalry regiment, just raised to serve in Texas. March 1861 saw him colonel of the 1st United States Cavalry. 
with the impossible exception of the two Johnstons, he was now the most promising candidate for General Scott's position whenever that venerable hero vacated it, as he was sure to do soon. On the initiative of Mississippi, a provisional Congress had met at Montgomery on February 4, 1861, and created a provisional constitution for the Confederate States of America. By March 11th, a permanent constitution was drafted, reproducing that of the United States with certain modifications. Slavery and state sovereignty received elaborate guarantees. Bounties and protective tariffs were absolutely forgiven. Cabinet members had seats in Congress. Parts of appropriation bills could be vetoed. The presidential term was six years, and a president could not be re-elected. This constitution, having been ratified by five or more legislatures, was set in play by the Provisional Congress. Virginia, on seceding, was taken into the Confederacy, and the Confederate capital changed from Montgomery to Richmond. Lee was a Virginian, and Virginia, about to secede, and at length seceding, in most earnest tones, besought her distinguished son to join her. It seemed to him the call of duty, and that call, as he understood it, was one which it was not in him to disobey. President Lincoln knew the value of the man and sent Frank Blair to him to say that if he would abide by the Union, he should soon command the whole active army. That would probably have meant his election, in due time, to the presidency of his country. For God's sakes, don't resign, Lee, General Scott, himself a Virginian, is said to have pleaded. He replied, I am compelled to, I cannot consult my own feelings in the matter. Accordingly, on April 20th, 1861, Three days after Virginia passed its ordinance of secession, Lee sent to Simon Cameron, Secretary of War, his resignation as an officer in the United States Army. Few at the North were able to understand the secession movement, most denying that a man at once thoughtful and honorable could join it. So centralized had the North by 1861 become in all social and economic particulars that centrality in government was taken as a matter of course. Representing this, the nation was deemed paramount to any state. Governmental sovereignty, like travel and trade, had come to ignore state lines. The whole idea and feeling of state sovereignty, once as potent north as south, had vanished and been forgotten. Far otherwise at the south, where, owing to the great size of states and to the paucity of railways and telegraphs, interstate association was not yet a force. Each state, being in square miles ample enough for an empire, retained to a great extent the consciousness of an independent nation. The state was near and palpable, the central government seemed a vague and distant thing. Loyalty was conceived as binding one primarily to one's own state. It is a misconception to explain this feeling, for in most cases it was feeling rather than recent conviction by Calhoun's teaching. It resulted from geography and history, and these factors working as they did would have been what it was had Calhoun never lived. With reflecting Southerners, Calhoun's message no doubt had some confirmatory effect because historically and also in a certain legal aspect, Calhoun's view was very impressive. That the overwhelming majority of the early Americans who voted to ratify the national constitution supposed it to be simply a compact between the states cannot be questioned, nor could ratification ever have been affected had any considerable number believed otherwise. The view that a state wishing to withdraw from the Union might for good cause do so was the prevalent one till long after the War of 1812, yielding thereafter at the North, less to Webster's logic than to the social and economic development just mentioned. At the South, it did not thus give way. There, the propriety of secession was never aught but a question of sufficient grievance to be settled by each state for itself, speaking through a majority of its voters. 
When the secession ordinances actually passed, many individual voters in each state opposed on the ground that the occasion was insufficient. But such opponents, of whom Alexander H. Stevens of Georgia was one, nearly to a man felt bound, as good citizens, to acquiesce in the decision of their states and even to uphold this in arms. Whether voting secession or accepting it on state mandate, Southern men naturally resented being called traitors or rebels. By the Websterian conception of the nature of our government, they were so, but by Calhoun's, they were simply acting out the Constitution in the best of faith. No recognized arbiter or criterion existed to determine between the two views. Massachusetts denounced seceding South Carolina as a traitor. South Carolina berated Massachusetts, seeking to impose the Union on the South against its will, as a criminal aggressor. An intelligent referee with no bias for either must have pronounced the judgments equally just. These considerations explain how Colonel Lee, certainly one of the most conscientious men who ever lived, felt bound in duty and honor to side with seceding Virginia, though he doubted the wisdom of her course. Lee was, from the first, Virginia's military hero and hope, but he did not at once become such to the Confederacy at large. He did not immediately take the field. Till after Bull Run, he remained in Richmond, President Jefferson Davis's advisor and right-hand man in organizing the forces incessantly arriving and pushing to the front. In his brief West Virginia campaign, where he first came in contact with McClellan, being looked upon as an invader rather than a friend, Lee had scant success. Some therefore called him a mere historic name, Letcher's pet, a West Pointer, no fighting general. He went to South Carolina to supervise the repair and building of coast fortifications there, and it was no doubt in large part owing to his engineering skill then applied that Charleston, whose sea door the Federals incessantly pounded from the beginning, probably wasting there more powder and iron than at all other points together, was captured only at the end of the war and then from the land side. In March 1862, General Lee again became President Davis's military advisor. But though thus, in relative obscurity, Lee was not forgotten. President Davis knew his man and knew that his hour would come. When, in May 1862, the vast Federal Army stood almost at Richmond's gates, Albert Sidney Johnston being dead and Joseph E. Johnston lying wounded, the Confederacy lifted up its voice and called Robert E. Lee to assume command upon the Chickahominy front. This he did on June 1, 1862. The Confederates' ill success on the second day of the Fair Oaks battle was to them a blessing in disguise. It put McClellan at his ease, giving Lee time to accomplish three extremely important ends. He could rest and recruit his army, fortify the south of Richmond with stout works, a detail which had not been attended to before, and send Stonewall Jackson down the valley of Virginia, so frightening the authorities in Washington that they dared not reinforce McClellan. Brilliant victory resulted. Leaving only 25,000 men between his capital and his foe, Lee, on June 26, threw the rest across the upper Chickahominy and attacked the Federal right. Fighting terribly at Mechanicsville and Gaines's Mill, A.P. Hill and Jackson, the latter having made forced marches from the Shenandoah to join in the movement, pushed back Fitzjohn Porter's corps across the Chickahominy, sundering McClellan entirely from his York River base. The Union Army was now nearer Richmond than the bulk of Lee's, which was beyond the Chickahominy, at that time none too easily crossed. Had McClellan been Lee or Grant or Sherman, he would have made a dash for Richmond. But he was McClellan, and Lee knew perfectly well that he would attempt nothing so bold. Retreat was the Northerner's thought, and he did retreat, in good order, and hitting back venomously from White Oak Swamp and Malvern Hill, 
till he had reached Harrison's Landing upon the James, where gunboats sheltered and supply ships fed his men. Lee felt disappointed with the seven days' fighting in that he had not crushed McClellan. He had, however, forced him to raise the siege of Richmond and to retreat thirty or forty miles. The Confederacy breathed freely again, and its gallant chieftain began to be famous. The new leader had thus far given only hints of his fertile strategy. McClellan's army was still but two days' march from Richmond. Its front was perfectly fortified. McClellan was an engineer. Gunboats protected its flanks. Lee, an engineer too, knew that to attack McClellan there would be too costly, yet McClellan must be removed, and this before he could be reinforced for an advance. His removal was accomplished. General Pope was threatening Richmond from the north. The government expected great things of him. In a pompous manifesto, he had given out that retreating days were over, that his headquarters were to be in the saddle, and that, as he swept on to Richmond, where he evidently expected to arrive in the course of a few days, his difficulty was going to be not to whip his enemy, but to get at him in order to do so. When Pope wrote that manifesto, he knew many men, but there was one man whom he did not yet know. It was Stonewall Jackson, the most unique and interesting character rolled into notice by those tempestuous years, unless Nathan Bedford Forrest is the exception. Like the great Muslim warrior, terrible he rode alone with his Yemen sword for aid, ornament it carried none, save the notches on its blade. Jackson was an intensely religious man. Unlike many good soldiers, he wore his piety into camp and on to the battlefield, and would not have hesitated to offer prayer to the god of battles where every one of his 30,000 men could see and hear. And all those soldiers believed in the efficacy of their commander's prayers. Jackson was also a stern disciplinarian. If men in any way sought to evade duty, provost marshals were ordered to bring them into line, if necessary at the pistol's point. In consequence, when the day of battle came, there was not a man in the corps who did not feel sure that if he shirked duty, Stonewall Jackson would shoot him and God Almighty would damn him. This helped to render Jackson's 30,000 perhaps the most efficient fighting machine which had appeared upon the battlefield since the Ironsides of Oliver Cromwell. Pope was destined to make Jackson's acquaintance speedily, and rather unceremoniously, for Jackson was ill-mannered enough, instead of passing in his card at Pope's front door, as etiquette required, to present it at the kitchen gate. Before Pope was aware, his enterprising opponent, whose war model was that one man behind your enemy is worth ten in his front, had gone around through Thoroughfare Gap to Manassas Junction and planted himself, August 26, 1862, square across the only railroad that ran between Pope's army and Washington. Pope should have vaulted and struck Jackson like lightning before the rest of Lee's army could come up, but two considerations made him slow. One was that Longstreet's wing of Lee's army was now rather close in his front, and the other mortification at turning back after having started southward with such a blare of trumpets. Brave Confederate soldiers who were at Cedar Mountain, Second Bull Run, and Chantilly bear witness that the blood Pope's men shed in those battles ran red. But dazed, tired, lacking confidence, and at last on short rations, and faced or flanked by Lee's whole army, while but part of McClellan's was at hand, they fought either to fall or to retreat again. No one witnessing it can ever forget the consternation which prevailed in the fortifications about Washington the night after the Battle of Chantilly. The writer's own troop, manning Fort Ward, a few miles out from Alexandria, stood to its heavy guns every moment of that dismal night, gazing frontwards for a foe. The name Stonewall Jackson was on each lip. 
At the break of dawn, when the weary soldiers, trees, and fences easily look pokerish, brave artillerists swore that they could see the dreaded warrior charging down yonder hill heading a division, and, in almost agonizing tones, begged leave to load for action. Lee probably made a mistake in entering Maryland after the Battle of Chantilly, and his report implies that he would not at this time have done so for merely military reasons. But having crossed the Potomac, he did well to fight at Sharpsburg, Antietam, September 17, 1862, before recrossing. This was well because it was bold. Moreover, by bruising the Federals there, he delayed them, getting ample time for ensconcing his army on the Rappahannock front for the winter. Also for the Battle of Fredericksburg, December 13, 1862, Lee deserves no special praise. Doubtless his unerring engineer eye picked the fighting line, and his already great prestige inspired his brave army. But that was all. The pluck of his officers and men, and Burnside's incapacity, did the rest. Never did a general carry to battle a better plan of battle than fighting Joe Hooker's at Chancellorville, May 2nd to 3rd, 1863. And rarely has one marched from a battle that had proved for his own side a more lamentable fiasco. Taking the offensive with vast advantage in numbers, he proposed to hold Lee in place with one of his wings while he thrust the other behind Lee's left, between the Confederate Army and Richmond. But he had started a game at which two could play, and had challenged a more deft and daring gamester than himself. Early divining his purpose, Lee, leaving a small part of his force to engage Hooker's left, with the rest vigorously assumed the counteroffensive, sending Jackson, as usual, around Hooker's extreme right. Both movements completely succeeded. Now appeared the folly of promoting a general to the headship of a great army simply because of his fighting quality and his success with a division or corps. Attacked in front and routed on his flank, Hooker did exactly what all who knew him would have taken an oath that he would never do. Instead of going straight ahead with vengeance and bidding his far left do the same, he ordered and executed a retreat to his old position north of the Rappahannock. There were those who laid this disaster to Hooker's intemperance. President Lincoln probably had such a suspicion when, sending General Hooker west to join General Sherman, he admonished him, in passing through Kentucky, to steer clear of Bourbon County. Though Hooker was not a total abstainer, Chancellorsville is not to be explained by that fact any more than Jubal A. Early's defeat by Sheridan in the Shenandoah Valley is referable to his use of apple brandy. Hooker did not create his own defeat, as Burnside may, with little exaggeration, be said to have done at Fredericksburg. Lee defeated him and deserved the immense fame which the victory brought. No wonder he began a plan for the offensive again. Soon the ever-memorable Gettysburg campaign was begun. The details of this campaign, even those of the battle itself, July 1st through 3rd, 1863, we cannot give here, nor need we. The world knows them. The first day with Hill's and Ewell's success, costing the Union the life of its gallant General Reynolds, commanding the First Corps. The second day when, back and forth by the Devil's Den, Hood on one side and Dan Sickles on the other, fought their men as soldiers had never fought on the American continent before. And the third day, when for an hour a hundred cannon on Seminary Ridge belched hellfire at a hundred cannon on Cemetery Ridge, prelude in the natural key to Pickett's death-defying charge. A thousand fell where Kemper led, a thousand died where Garnett bled. In blinding flame and strangling smoke, the remnant through the batteries broke and crossed the works with Armistead. The Union Army was, for the first time, fighting a great battle on Union soil. The homes of many who were engaged stood within the sound of Gettysburg cannon. 
as the confederates did in many other engagements the federals here felt that they were repelling an invader and they fought accordingly with a grim iron resisting power which they had never displayed before great praise was due to general hancock and perhaps still more to general howard for early perceiving the strength of cemetery hill as a defensible position on the first day after general reynolds had fallen at his post of duty with the first corps general doubleday next in command was on the point of ordering a retreat the attack seeming too fearful to be withstood but howard coming up with the eleventh corps and assuming command of the field overruled doubleday and by enforcing a most stubborn resistance against hill's and ewell's desperate onsets probably saved cemetery hill from capture that evening end of section twenty